0: What you're about to listen to is part three of a four-part series about the Japanese samurai invasions of Korea, 1592-1598, to known in Korea as the Imjin War. If you haven't listened to part one or two, most of this is going to be nonsense, so I recommend that you do so. If you're all caught up, on with the show. The year, 1597. The place, Mayongyang Strait, Korea. Admiral Yi Sun-shin leads 13 ships full of terrified sailors against a Japanese fleet over 300 strong. It is one of the proudest and most desperate moments in their nation's history, the Korean Thermopylae. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast, and welcome back to Korea. This is Episode 22, The Imjin War, Part 3, Korean Thermopylae. I am your host, James Hauser, and guys, this is the climactic moment of the story, the battle I've been wanting to talk about for years, because it's one of the most amazing and least known stories in military history, the Battle of Myongyang, 1597, The Korean Thermopylae. Part of the broader MGen War series, yes, but I am so excited for this one. Now since I'm not a complete jerk, I'm going to give you a quick recap on what happened in the last two episodes. Now where were we? Oh yeah, oh yeah, Japan had been involved in an age of civil war for almost a century when a peasant-turned-warlord named Toyotomi Hideyoshi fought his way to the top. He had come from nothing and wanted everything, so he set his sights on the invasion of China ruled by the Ming Dynasty. When the small kingdom of Korea denied him passage through their territory, Hideyoshi unleashed a samurai blitzkrieg on this peaceful land. The Japanese were brought up short and their supplies were cut by the valiant resistance of Yi Sun-shin and the Korean Navy. When the samurai blitzkrieg ran out of gas, the Japanese were in trouble. Soon they were strangled by Yi Sun-shin's navy— pinned down by the brave and numerous Korean guerrilla warriors and finally punched in the face by the firepower and resources of Korea's ally Ming China. At the Battle of Pyongyang, the Ming crushed the Japanese spearhead and forced the Japanese to admit that they could no longer win the war. By spring of 1593, the Japanese negotiated the truce and began to withdraw to the southeastern tip of Korea. The war could have been over, but for the wounded pride of one man, Toyotomi Hideyoshi. So if you don't remember any of that, you might have missed an episode or two, so I advise you to check the feed. And if you like, I have two short rounds out with a lot of detail and background, both about Hideyoshi's samurai army and the armed forces of China and Korea. So if you haven't, I'll give you the chance to go check that out. You still here? Then let's get into it should you for some reason be unaware this is not just history but military history so there's some dark and bloody stuff going on the podcast is pg-13 guys language is clean the content is not all my sources for the whole series are my website so you can fact check me if you want to finally any errors mispronunciations or mistakes are my own especially with these pronunciations guys i don't speak mandarin japanese or korean i am doing my best I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. History does not repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes, it echoes. I'm going to give you a scene, a scene that has played out many times over all over the world in many different conflicts and in many different cultures. And I want you to see if any of this sounds familiar. The commander looked at his men. They were nervous, quivering, terrified. So few, and the enemy were so many. They were looking over their shoulders away from the battle. They wanted to run. Did they think he was any different? Did they realize that he was terrified too, scared for the future, worried for his family, and desperately, painfully afraid for the lives of every one of his soldiers? He could feel their eyes on him. He knew that he had to convince them. So he told them the truth. Yes, they were outnumbered. Outnumbered by a lot. But it didn't matter. The enemy was powerful, terrifying, dangerous, and brutal. But it didn't matter. Because they were the only thing that could stop them. It was victory or death. Their last stand. And they had to believe they could win. Only by fighting like cornered animals. By resisting with everything they had left. Could they hope to survive. He could see the men straighten up. Take deep breaths. And get their minds right. They weren't many but they would have to be enough. The commander looked into the distance. The enemy was coming. The sun was rising. If this was their last stand, it would be one that everyone would remember. Now this might seem familiar. It's a universal story, isn't it? This could be one of the biblical judges, maybe Gideon fighting off the Midianites or the Jewish Sicarii at Masada. It could be Roland at Roncesvalles, or that one Viking at Stamford Bridge. It could be the Knights of St John in their last stand at Acre in 1291, or at Malta in 1565. Washington crossing the Delaware, Custer's last stand, the French Foreign Legion at Camaron, or the 44th Foot at Gandamak in the wilds of Afghanistan. It could be hundreds of last stands from the World Wars, from a lonely rifle platoon facing a Panzer regiment to the Japanese on a dozen bloody islands. And, of course, the most famous Last Stand of all, where Leonidas and his, as we know, rather more than 300 Greeks, fought and died fighting the Persians in the Pass of Thermopylae. The story of the epic Last Stand is a common human experience with hundreds of examples, some known, most unknown. Some I just listed, the 44th at Gandamak, the Siege of Malta, I've already talked about in previous episodes. Others, like the French Foreign Legion at Cameron, I plan to. But to me, very few last stands come close to the Battle of Mayongyang, the Korean Thermopylae, where Yi Sun-shin led only 13 ships against 300 Japanese in one of history's most epic and most forgotten battles. One of the greatest last stands in human history, almost unknown to the West to this day. These men, more than almost any others, don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. Today, We will continue the story of the Imjin War. We're going to see the Chinese, Koreans, and Japanese cope with an uneasy ceasefire that lasted for four years and how poor diplomacy and the wounded pride of a powerful man caused the peace to fall apart. We're going to uncover a Japanese plot to remove their greatest enemy and see how Korea was brought to the brink of disaster. Then we will stand with Yi Sun-shin, at his last stand in one of history's greatest naval battles, where victory, defeat, and the future of a nation hang in the balance. And I will explain why it's important at the end of our story. You've hopefully heard part one and part two. Otherwise, a lot of this will not make much sense. Today is part three, and I'll tie it all together next week in part four. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is an epic story, there will be breaks. These are your chance to Pause. Bake some cookies, take the cat to the vet, whatever you need to do. So conquer your fear, load the cannons, tighten your armor, string your bow, and try not to get seasick. The Japanese are coming, and the current is roaring. We're going back on campaign. Few things are more dangerous than the wounded pride of a powerful man. And Toyotomi Hideyoshi's pride was pretty freaking wounded. Not long ago, victory had been in sight. The samurai blitzkrieg had captured cities and smashed armies. World conquest was so close he could smell it. Then it had all fallen apart. By May 1593, Hideyoshi's armies were retreating south to Busan. Even if he tried to pretend that this had been a symbolic victory, Hideyoshi knew in his heart that he had been defeated. He was angry. He had come from nothing, had tried for everything, and been denied. Someone somewhere would have to pay for the wounded pride of a powerful man. Hideyoshi's rage focused on the city of Jinju. In November 1592, a Japanese army had failed to capture this stubborn little town, and for some reason, the defiance of Jinju made Hideyoshi angrier than any other event of the war. Jinju would pay the price for his humiliation. Hideyoshi sent orders to his retreating forces that, ceasefire or no ceasefire, he had one last task for them. They were to wipe Jinju off the map. And to accomplish this, Hideyoshi chose his fiercest daimyo, the man Koreans called the Demon General, Mr. Banana Hat himself, Kato Kiyomasa. Kato Kiyomasa, like Hideyoshi, hated admitting defeat. He insisted to the very end, despite all evidence, that he could march on and take Beijing with only 20,000 men. On top of that, the ceasefire required him to release the Korean princes he had captured on his campaigns in the north. So Hideyoshi chose Kato Kiyomasa to lead the assault, both to soothe his wounded pride and to ensure that his most terrifying and brutal commander would punish the city of Jinju. The Allies figured out what was up. The Chinese tried to send reinforcements, and the Koreans were determined to hold the city at first. But when Kato led almost 90,000 men towards the city, a massive army full of reinforcements led by an all-star cast of the Daimyo, most folks realized that Jinju was doomed. There was no way. Best to evacuate the city, let the Japanese vent their anger, and stay out of the way. But General Kim Chon il refused to evacuate his 4,000 men, and thousands of civilians had sheltered within the walls. Even the redcoat general Kwok jae the famous Korean guerrilla leader, was like, Hey guys, this city is not going to hold. Y'all need to leave. But General Kim refused to evacuate, and Kwok led his guerrillas away, knowing the city was doomed. Kato Kiyomasa's steel sledgehammer arrived outside Jinju on July 20th, 1593, making the small fortress look like an island in the midst of an angry samurai sea. He began the assault the next day. It was ferocious, mighty, a horrific surge of men and weapons towards the walls of the city. The second siege of Jinju raged for seven days, but the outcome was never in doubt. The Japanese finally broke through the wall on July 27th, and samurai pushed each other out of the way to be the first into the city. The defenders resisted with spears, swords, muskets, sharp sticks, stones, or even their fists, but it was no use. The samurai in their heavy armor and the ashigaru with their muskets blasted their way through the terrified defenders. The people of Jinju were forced to the cliffs, overlooking the Nam River. There was no escape. The samurai captured and beheaded anyone they reached, but thousands of Koreans threw themselves into the river to drown, choosing death on their own terms. The Japanese slaughtered everyone in Jinju. Men, women, children didn't matter. Even the chickens and the cows and the dogs were butchered. The Nam River flowed red and the corpses choked the water, piling up against the rocks or washing out into the ocean. The Japanese leveled the walls, burned the buildings, destroyed the wells. When Kato Kiyomasa's men were done, Jinju had ceased to exist. One of Korea's most famous stories of the Imjin War comes from the fall of Jinju. A 20-year-old courtesan named Nange decided that her death would not be in vain. She went out to a spot where some samurai were celebrating the victory and made a come-hither gesture to one of Kato's loyal retainers. When the drunken samurai stumbled closer with a stupid grin on his face, Nange smiled back. Then she grabbed him and threw them both off the cliff to their deaths. To this day, virtually every Korean remembers Nange as a great heroine of their country, and a shrine stands at Jinju to honor her sacrifice. But the second siege of Jinju was the largest and most terrible of all the Japanese atrocities in Korea, the biggest single atrocity as many as 60,000 Koreans died in the siege and the massacre that followed. The Chinese and Koreans were rightly furious, and many wanted to punish the Japanese for this terrible crime committed during what was supposed to be a ceasefire. But Genju had been nothing more than a salve to the wounded pride of a powerful man. 60,000 people had paid the price for Hideyoshi's ego. The Japanese withdrew back to the vicinity of Busan and reopened peace talks. They would sit there for the next four years. So, I've described the Mjin Wars lasting from 1592 to 1598. I've been consistent about that. But that's only kinda true, because there were two periods of full-on fighting. The first lasted from 1592 to 1593 and ended with the ceasefire at Seoul, briefly interrupted by the Massacre at Jinju. But after that, the ceasefire mostly survived with light skirmishing between 1593 and 1597. What happened in 1597 to break that truce, reignite the war, and almost bring Korea to its knees again? Well, that's today's episode. So, this was how it was during the ceasefire, 1593 to 1597, four years. The Japanese sat in their fortresses in Southeast Korea, waiting to see what would come out of the peace talks. The Chinese took most of their army home, leaving only a few diplomats and a couple of soldiers in Korea to keep an eye on the Japanese, while again waiting on the peace talks. The Koreans stayed vigilant, watching the invaders from their forts, waiting on the peace talks. Now, the Allies disagreed on what they wanted out of this peace deal the Koreans were understandably bent out of shape that the Japanese were still on their soil. They had wanted to fight the war until the Japanese were beaten to a pulp and kicked out of Korea for good. The Chinese, on the other hand, had different motivations. The conflict had drained the Imperial treasury and they had other non-Korea issues to worry about. The Chinese wanted to end the war as cheaply and as painlessly as possible. If that meant letting the Japanese occupy a chunk of Korea while negotiations continued, so be it. Not optimal, but it's better than starting the war again. Month after month, year after year, all three countries watched and waited as the peace talks marched on. Now, there's a long story to these peace talks for one thing they were slow and for another there are a lot of different diplomats and intrigues and problems a bunch of back and forth so i'm gonna simplify it for you as much as i can let's play diplomacy aka advanced lying there were only two countries involved in the peace talks korea was left out because china basically said hey hey little bro sit back big bro's gonna handle this Korea was not happy about being left out of negotiations and they were constantly suspicious that China was trying to sell them down the river, but Korea's not really involved in the talks. So what did Japan want out of the peace deal? What I really mean is what did Hideyoshi want, because Hideyoshi pretty much was Japan at this point. Hideyoshi had tried and failed to overthrow the Chinese world order. He believed that he had sort of won the war for some reason, so maybe he could get a chunk of Korea out of the deal. You know, a little Korea. As a treat but what hideyoshi really wanted was respect he would never in a million years bow down to the chinese emperor even if he wasn't going to replace the ming he wanted them to at least acknowledge him as an equal he had come from nothing and even if he couldn't have everything he could at least get the respect he deserved okay so what did china want out of the peace deal the chinese believed they had won the war They wanted Japan out of the Korea, put back in their hole, and they also wanted to force Japan to recognize the Chinese world order. They wanted them to acknowledge that, of course, they were subordinate to the Ming, like every country on Earth. The Chinese saw Hideyoshi as a rough barbarian, but if he was super nice and said pretty please, they would allow him to become a tributary and trade with China. So you see the problem here, right? Both sides were coming at the issue so far apart that they didn't even acknowledge the same reality. Hideyoshi believed that he had won the war and got to make demands. Chinese Emperor Wan Li believed that he had won the war, so he got to make demands. Their view of the situation wasn't even in the same ballpark. So, the peace talks mostly took place in Busan itself. Now, the two main diplomats were some old friends of ours. For the Chinese, Shifty Shin Weijing, the merchant who could speak a little Chinese, so that qualified him somehow to be a diplomat. And the Christian Daimyo Konishi Yukinaga for the Japanese. Those are your two diplomats, and they had their work freaking cut out for them. Because when Hideyoshi finally submitted his demands, Konishi Yukinaga basically said, oh lord, how am I going to spend this? Hideyoshi's demand started with the usual crap about being born by a ray of sunlight into his mother's breast, but then demanded, among other things, that A, Wanli's daughter be sent to marry the Japanese emperor, B, that trade be renewed, C, that Japan be allowed to annex South Korea, and D, that Korea would send hostages and acknowledge Japan's authority over her. So I'm going to paraphrase how everyone responded to this. None of these are actual quotes. So Kanishi brought Hideyoshi's demands, this document, to Shin and said, dude, this is crazy. And Shin said, yeah, you think? If I take this to the emperor, he'll cut my head off and restart the war. Splitting up a Korea, a marriage alliance? That's not how the world order works, man. You guys have to acknowledge China's authority. You guys have been defeated. And Kanishi said, yeah, I get that, but Hideyoshi doesn't get that. He doesn't think he's been defeated. He thinks that he gets to make demands. If I go back to Hideyoshi and tell him what you just told me, he'll cut my head off and restart the war. So if we tell the truth, we're both in trouble. And then Shen said, yeah, but what if we lied? Kanishi said, oh, good idea. What if we lied? <laughs> so they lied. <laughs> Kanishi told his boss, Hideyoshi, the Chinese were totally ready to accept most of his demands. Asking for a chunk of Korea was a bit much, and Hideyoshi said, yeah, 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 that might be a little bit much, but I'm getting the Ming princess, trade relations, and recognition as an equal. And Kenishi said, sure, boss, absolutely. The Chinese are going to give you all of that. You've won the war. Shen went and told his boss, the Emperor Wanli, that, yep, Hideyoshi had totally learned the error of his ways and was ready to become a Chinese tributary. In fact, that's all he had ever wanted. And the Emperor Wanli said, oh, okay, but does he have anything he wants? Any, does he have any demands? Shen smiled, you know, like a liar and said, demands? No, Hideyoshi doesn't have any demands. It just might be nice if we could play along with a couple of these weird quirks he has. No big deal. And Wanli said, oh, okay, that's fine then. So these lies, of course, I'm just summing up four years of diplomacy in like that little statement. These lies had the potential to blow everything up. But Shen Jing and Kanishi Yukonaga knew how far apart the two sides were. The only hope for peace was to, well, modify the truth. If either side had the truth rubbed in their faces, negotiations would go to pieces and the war would resume and nobody wanted that. And a lot of people were willing to play along. In East Asian diplomacy in this time period, saving face, that is, avoiding humiliation and dishonor, even if it ignored reality, was incredibly important and Shin and Kanishi's diplomatic shenanigans were helping both sides save face. As long as both sides could save face and avoided asking questions they didn't want the answers to, the war might end. Diplomacy is, after all, just advanced lying. But of course, if Kanishi Yukunaga was doing something, there was one guy who was 100% determined to screw it up for him, and that was his arch-rival, the Demon General, Kato Kiyomasa. There were multiple occasions in this whole process where Kato would burst in loudly proclaiming Hideyoshi's actual demands to the Chinese diplomats, causing a bunch of fuss before Kanishi and Shin was like, no, 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 no everything's fine, everything's fine. It's, it's fine, it's fine. Kato tried to warn Hideyoshi that Kanishi was up to something, but it seems like Hideyoshi kind of wanted peace too. He knew that Kanishi was trying to save face. Hideyoshi was like, don't care what's going on over there. As long as I get the respect I deserve. But the upshot is that this all took years, years in which the Japanese and Koreans sat there, staring at each other with clenched teeth, waiting for the negotiations to succeed or to fall apart. But the scars of 1592 remained. The once peaceful and prosperous kingdom of Choson, Korea, was in ruins. The Japanese hadn't just been amazingly cruel to the Korean people, they had devastated the economy. Thousands of Koreans had died, not just at human hands. War is always followed by the other three horsemen, pestilence, famine, and death. The Koreans were starving, suffering from epidemics, dying by the score in the ruins of their cities and farms. The Korean Prime Minister, Yu Song-nyong, recalled what he saw when he returned to the ruined capital city of Seoul. When I entered the capital with the Ming soldiers, I saw that scarcely one in a hundred citizens still remained. Those few people to be seen were all starving. They were gaunt, sick, and exhausted, the color of their faces like that of a ghost. The weather at this time was extremely hot and humid, so the dead bodies and horse carcasses that lay exposed and unattended throughout the city had begun to rot, emitting such a stench that passersby had to plug their nostrils. Yu Song-nyong walked through Seoul, looking at the burned palaces and the shattered homes. He broke down sobbing when he saw the ancient shrine that had once contained the tablets of the Chosan kings, burnt to cinders. The Japanese had desecrated the royal tombs, burned the bodies of the dead kings and queens. The people of Seoul and people all over Korea were so hungry that they dug through the trash, hunted through the gutters for grains of rice. One story said that when a Chinese soldier puked, men fought each other to eat the vomit. There were stories of cannibalism in the countryside. Epidemics like typhus ravaged the people, and bodies stacked up outside the walls of Seoul. Yu Song-nyong and the Korean government tried to rebuild, to feed their citizens and relieve the suffering, but there was only so much they could do. Yu recorded another incident soon after the recapture of Seoul. On his way to Masan, Regional Commander Cha found a little baby sucking the nipple of its dead mother. He took the baby to his camp to be raised. He said to me, the Japanese enemies have not gone away yet and the plight of the people is terrible. What should we do? Hearing his words, I cried unawares, tears streaming down my face. That's, well, that's something you probably don't forget seeing. I immediately ordered Kim Cha-an to go down to Chola Province with my official letter. I told him to open the grain storehouses in Namwon and personally take out 10,000 sulk of grain and carry them to Yongnam to feed the people. With efforts like this, and with the final withdrawal of the Japanese from much of Korea, rebuilding could finally begin. It wouldn't be easy. Fields lay abandoned and barren. Bandits roamed the hills of Korea looting and stealing. The Japanese had carried thousands of people into slavery, including many talented craftsmen. They had shackled the most beautiful women to be forced into sexual slavery. For those that survived, there was the lasting trauma, anger, humiliation, and fear. The Koreans had defeated the Japanese. They had driven back the invader. But that didn't put food in people's mouths or return kidnapped mothers to their homeless children. So the Koreans tried to pick up the pieces, hoping against hope that the ceasefire would end with a lasting peace. Down on Korea's southern coast, Admiral Yi Sun-shin was simmering like a pot of frustrated stew. He had been prepared to mess the Japanese up every way from Sunday when they tried to withdraw from Korea. But the ceasefire threw a wrench into his grand plan. Instead, he had to maintain his fleet, keep an eye on the Japanese, and wait, and wait, and wait. He was chomping at the bit, ready to send his ships in, but the Chinese ordered him to stay quiet. In the meantime, Admiral Yi continued to build up and improve his navy. He had captured some Japanese muskets and was doing his best to reverse engineer and replicate them. He kept his ships maintained and rotated his men to work in the fields so they could feed themselves. He also maintained his vigil on the Japanese invader. The man could not wait to go hunting samurai again. If the robbers ever stirred from the Pusan perimeter, Korea's great admiral would be there to stop them. But Yi's biggest problems were not coming from the Japanese, they were coming from the Korean court. The emergency was over, and you know what that means. The western faction and the eastern faction, the two-party system in the Korean court, waited about five seconds before arguing and bickering like nothing had changed. The most powerful member of the eastern faction was Yu Song-nyong, King Sanjo's prime minister, one of the only honest people in the entire Korean government. Yu Song-myong had done everything he could to prepare Korea for war, coordinated the alliance with the Chinese, and was rebuilding Korea. He was indispensable. The Western faction knew that he was too powerful to go after directly, but they could go after his childhood friend, Admiral Yi Sun-shin. The Western faction began to spread a whisper campaign against Yi Sun-shin, some mean girls, high school lunchroom crap. And their main tool for this slander was Admiral Wang Yoon. Admiral wan Yoon, you might remember from the first episode of the series. He had led one of Korea's main fleets when the war began, but he had sunk most of his fleet and run away with only four ships when the Japanese attacked. He had fought under Admiral Yi in all the battles since then, but he and Yi already hated each other, Yi criticized him for being an incompetent drunk, and yes. Uh, but now, Admiral Yi got along with his close friend and co-commander, Yi Ok-ki. They played chess together, had an excellent working relationship, but Yi Sun Shen hated Wang Yun, and Wan returned the sentiment. Yi Sun Shen criticized Wang Yun's cowardice, incompetence, lack of discipline, and especially his rampant drinking binges. He wrote many entries about it in his war diary. June 19, 1593, Wang Yun transmitted dispatches with false reports, causing a profound sensation among many Navy units. August 27, 1593, after dark, Admiral Yi okay ki came to my boat and said that Wang Yoon talked nonsense as he brought false accusations against me. All that he says is absurd. August 31st, 1593. In the evening, Admirals Wang Geun, Yi okay ki and Shong kol came to a staff meeting in my cabin, where Wang Yoon jabbered all the time with pointless words. He kept contradicting himself. September 20th, 1593, Wang Yoon became drunk, bellowing out mad words of a vicious nature. Astounding. September 22nd, 1593, Wang Yoon came to me and uttered many vicious and deceitful words. What a dangerous man. Can you tell that Yi Sun Shin doesn't like this guy? But to be honest, you ever have that one coworker who show, shows up to work drunk, lies all the time, and doesn't know how to do his job? So you can understand his frustration. But Wang Yoon wasn't just a drunken incompetent idiot. He was a drunken incompetent, jealous idiot who wanted to cut his competitor down. He had gone from outranking Yi before the war began to being in his shadow, especially after Yi Sun-shin was promoted to commander-in-chief of the Korean Navy. From Wan-gyun's point of view, this goody-two-shoes snitch had won some easy victories, and he thought that made him better than everyone else. So, all during the truce, Wang gyun was sending angry text messages to the Western faction accusing Yi Sun-shin of cowardice and treason, trying to sabotage his reputation. The Western faction used Yoon's slanders to drag Yi Sun-shin's name through the mud. If you make enough smoke, people will start assuming there's a fire. The Korean court started to get suspicious of their great admiral. Was he really the hero everyone said he was? Now, Yu Song-young always spoke up in favor of his friend, but of course he did. He, that's his friend. He's That's his little toady. He, of course he supports him. So despite all Yi Sun-shin's talent, national defense had once again become a political issue. Yi Sun-shin had always refused to play the political game. He hated politics, but even if you aren't interested in politics, politics is interested in you. At one point in 1594, Yi received a report that the Japanese had gone beyond the ceasefire line to forage for food. They were basically stealing food from local Koreans. He was off like a rocket and hit the Japanese like a sledgehammer, sinking 31 ships off the coast of Koje-do. But a few days later, he got an angry message from the local Chinese general, yelling at him for endangering the truce. Yi sun sin was like, what do you want me to do? He simmered with anger, but he had to withdraw his ships. And keep watching, and keep waiting. The Japanese waited too, frustrated, grinding their teeth, watching the Koreans watch them. Most of their forces had withdrawn to Japan while the peace talks continued but they still had around 50,000 troops holding the coastal fortresses around Busan. These fortresses were called the Wajo, and you can see their ruins in South Korea to this day. The Wajo were constructed both by Korean captives and forced labor brought over from Japan, Japanese peasants, and many of these Japanese workers were barely treated better than the Koreans. Lots of Japanese laborers deserted to the Korean side, and many of their descendants live in Korea to this day. The Japanese were playing the waiting game too. The daimyo and their troops sat in their castles, spending time holding tea ceremonies and poetry contests, drinking sake, playing kickball, and hunting. They were also horribly abusing the local population, including rounding up Korean slaves for sale overseas, all while the Korean military had to grit its teeth, clench its fists, and wait. This was a ceasefire that nobody wanted. They were all waiting for diplomacy to succeed or to fail. I don't think I'm spoiling anything when I tell you it failed, but it failed for the same reason that the Imjin War began, that thousands of Chinese and Japanese and Koreans died, that the final pointless massacre at Jinju had taken place, the wounded pride of a powerful man, because Toyotomi Hideyoshi's bruised ego would unleash the killing again in 1597. By 1596, Kanishi Yukinaga's and Shifty Shin Weijing's diplomatic shenanigans had almost scored a home run. Now this had not been easy. The skeeviest thing they'd done so far was to forge a letter from Hideyoshi to the Ming emperor asking for tributary status. This was incredibly dangerous. If Hideyoshi ever found out that his subordinate had forged a letter claiming he wanted to be a Chinese vassal, well he would probably get Kanishi's head in a box for Christmas. The Chinese officials accepted the letter with suspicion, since uh, this doesn't contain Hideyoshi's usual nut bar sunbeam baby daddy nonsense, are you sure this is from him? Kenishi was like, yeah, it's definitely from him, absolutely. So the Japanese emissary arrived in Beijing with Kenishi's forged letter, which asked for Hideyoshi to be invested as a tributary king and for trade to resume. The Chinese replied that trade with the Ming was a privilege, not a right, and an aggressive barbarian like Hideyoshi deserved no such privilege. So they said, fine, we'll make him a vassal king, but he has to earn his privileges back. Basically treating Hideyoshi like a kid who had his Xbox taken away. So the Ming delegation arrived in Busan to travel to Japan and formally induct Hideyoshi into the ranks of China's tributaries, a new participant in the Chinese world order. Kanishi and Shin were like, okay guys, we're almost there, everyone play it cool. But the Ming delegates raised hell, why are there still Japanese troops in Korea? Uh, Good question. And only calmed down after Kanishi sent some more troops back to Japan as a goodwill gesture. The Chinese waited for almost a year, during which time Kato Kiyomasa sent them messages saying, hey, Kanishi's been lying to you, Hideyoshi will never accept these terms. But despite Banana Hat's efforts to sabotage his rival, the Ming envoys sailed for Japan. Now, Toyotomi Hideyoshi hadn't been paying much attention to Korea for the last few years. His concerns were closer to home. In 1593, his favorite concubine, Yodo Dono, bore him a son, Toyotomi Hideyori. Now, Hideyoshi had had a son before, the baby who had peed on him in front of the Korean diplomats, but that son had died young before the war began. But as Hideyori grew up strong and healthy, Hideyoshi worried about his son's future. He didn't know what would happen to Japan when he died, and he wasn't in great shape. He was worried about his powerful vassals, especially the mighty Tokugawa Aieyasu, the second most powerful man in Japan. If I keep mentioning this guy, it's because he's important later. That's foreshadowing. Hideyoshi was obsessed with securing his legacy and his son's future, ensuring that the newly born clan Toyotomi would not vanish like all the other clans that had been defeated in the age of war. So Hideyoshi was barely paying attention to Korea, he just knew that his diplomats were supposed to be negotiating the peace he wanted. The moment of truth came on October 22, 1596, when Shen Weijing and the Chinese delegates arrived to meet Hideyoshi in Osaka. They held up the Chinese investiture certificate and the gold seal, waiting for the appearance of Japan's great warlord. When Hideyoshi finally emerged, he had clearly aged. His health was declining. The small, wrinkled dictator, leaning on a cane, looked at the Chinese envoys. Then he looked at his daimyo and said, Why aren't they bowing before me? Uh Uh-oh. Dangerous sign number one. Because the Chinese were expecting Hideyoshi to bow before the imperial decree. Kanishi Yukinaga's advisors came running. They're like, no, 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 no. The, the Chinese diplomat means no offense. He can't kneel. He has a, a, a boil on his knee. Yeah, a boil. Hideyoshi said, oh, okay. And everyone was like, whew, breathed a sigh of relief. Crisis averted. The Chinese handed over the certificate, then the seal, then the crown and silk robes of a Chinese subject, which Hideyoshi happily accepted, thinking these were a gift, not thinking these were the clothes of a Chinese subject, because he had been lied to. The next day, Hideyoshi held a banquet to celebrate the peace treaty. He attended in his new Chinese clothes, still unaware that this was the garb of a tributary. The dinner was pretty chill, everyone drinking and laughing and talking. Hey guys, the MGen war is over. We get to go home soon. Then Hideyoshi asked some of his servants to read the Chinese documents aloud, but in Japanese, so he could understand them. Uh Uh-oh. Kanishi grabbed the servants and said, Basically, dude, whatever you do, don't tell him what that document actually says. We are so close. But the servant shrugged him aside and began to read the Chinese message. Here is some of what that document said. You, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, have risen in the island country and have learned how to revere China. With our special grace, we hereby invest you as King of Japan. You are now in our imperial favor. Our imperial coronet and robes are herewith sent over the seas to you. You, Hideyoshi, are hereby instructed to comply with our commands and to stand ready to fulfill your obligations to our throne as a loyal subject. Hideyoshi soaked up the Chinese message, quivering with rage. Every word was an insult, a humiliation. The dictator's face twisted as he heard China's imperial commands that he withdraw from Korea and never seek trade with China. When the servant finished, Hideyoshi stripped off the Chinese clothes and went into a frenzy. A Christian missionary at the Japanese court recorded Hideyoshi's reaction as he flew into such a passion and rage that he was perfectly out of himself. He frothed and foamed at the mouth. He ranted and tore till his head smoked like fire, and his body was all over in a dripping sweat. Hideyoshi had the Chinese officials chased out of Japan and laid his wrath on anyone else involved in the negotiations. He almost had Kanishi Yukinaga executed before a few people, including his baby mama Yododono, intervened, reminding him of Kanishi's valuable service in the war. But Hideyoshi's fury finally settled on Korea. They had been the cause of all of this. Their lies, their defiance, their resistance. Hideyoshi ordered his daimyo to muster their armies again. But this time the objective was not world conquest. It wasn't even to overthrow the Chinese world order. It would be vengeance, retribution, a reassertion of his authority. The humiliation of Osaka made him appear weak in front of his daimyo. And the insult from China was more than his ego could bear. The Koreans would pay for the wounded pride of a powerful man. By early 1597, dozens of daimyo and thousands of Japanese soldiers were crossing the Straits of Tsushima back into the Korean peninsula. Hideyoshi's armies were gathering to resume the war, but the Japanese had learned one very big lesson from 1592. They had to gain control of the sea, first by strengthening the Japanese navy. Second, by getting rid of Japanese enemy number one, Yi Sun-shin. Wang Gyoon's lies and the Western faction's slanders had eroded Yi Sun-shin's status at the Korean court over the last four years. The Western faction criticized Yi Sun-shin for failing to act against the Japanese despite the ceasefire, and used false witnesses to spin a different version of events from 1592, where Wang Giun had been the one to actually win the famous naval victories. Soon, King Sanjo was on the verge of firing Admiral Yi and replacing him with Goon, even though war with the Japanese was clearly right around the corner. The Japanese got wind of all this intrigue, their spies reported it, and they said, hey, this might be our chance to get rid of this guy. So they put together a plan to take advantage of Korea's political division and get Yi Sun-shin out of their way. In early 1597 a well-known double agent named Yoljiro arrived at a Korean headquarters, carrying a message from, of all people, Kanishi Yukinaga. Kanishi said that he had had a wonderful plan for peace, but it had failed because of the interference of his arch-rival, Kato Kiyomasa. So he told the Koreans where and when Kato and his new force, his new army that he had just raised, would be sailing from Japan to Busan. If the Korean Navy hit this convoy, they would get rid of their most hated enemy, the Demon General, the Butcher of Jinju, and Kanishi would get rid of his rival. It was a win-win. The Koreans knew all about the rivalry between the two daimyos, so they took the information at face value. The Korean court sent orders to Yi Sun-shin to move his fleet immediately and wipe out the Demon General's force. But Yi was suspicious. This, this Something smelled funny about this. He looked at Yojiro's message and said, yep, that's a trap, that's bait. The area where Kato's fleet was supposed to be was a possible death trap, an easy ambush site that could result in the destruction of his fleet. So when he decided not to attack, refused the order, and Kato's armada arrived at Busan intact, the Western faction howled in outrage. It was cowardice, treason, a violation of direct orders. They demanded Yi Sun Shen's immediate imprisonment, even execution. The problem was that Yi Sun-shin had been right. Yojiro's message was a trap. The Japanese had planted this message on purpose. They wanted nothing more than for Yi and his fleet to walk into the ambush so they could wipe him out. But when Yi didn't take the bait, he got into trouble with the high command. The Japanese plan was brilliant since it worked no matter what Yi Sun-shin did. It was a win-win. On April 12, 1597, a Korean official arrived at Yi Sun-shin's base on Han San-do with orders to turn over command to Wang gyun the new commander-in-chief of the Korean Navy. Yi had to give up his ships, his supplies, his sailors, all the work of six years and tireless effort and devotion to duty, to his nemesis, an incompetent, spiteful alcoholic, the man he hated. But Yi bowed his head and complied. The Korean admiral was tied up, put in a cage, and hauled back to Seoul to be thrown in prison. The Japanese plan had worked. Yi Sun-shin was removed from the equation. So look guys, we talk a lot in this podcast about how history is affected by all kinds of trends and forces, right? Politics, economics, technology, culture, logistics, morale, geography, all sorts of major forces that are only somewhat affected by single individuals or single personalities. I do not believe in the great man theory of history. The idea that kings and generals and geniuses are the only people in the story of humanity. Millions of people make history together. It's not something that only a few people shape. That being said, sometimes leadership really matters. And this is very, very clear in the M. Jin War. From the very beginning, Yi Sun-shin had been the only Korean admiral with the ability, resources, and willpower to fight the Japanese to a standstill. His pre-war preparations and strategies had chopped the legs out from under the samurai blitzkrieg. For a while, he had been the only thing holding the Japanese back. Almost every other admiral had failed, burnt his ships, or run away. Only Yi had remained dutiful and loyal, competent and determined, the bane of the Japanese invaders. And now, just when Korea was about to need Yi Sun-shin the most, he was being interrogated. And you know what that means, it's the 1500s. East Asian torture chambers were second only, probably maybe just as bad, as the Inquisition, which was happening at the same time. Yi Sun-shin was flogged, starved, burned with hot metal and coals, stretched and hammered, some of his bones almost being broken. Even under all of this, Yi refused to admit to his alleged crimes, stubbornly holding on to his honor. Finally, when he was almost dead, he was thrown back in prison into a dark cell where well, he was just going to wait to die, pretty much. Yi's enemies wanted him executed. Even Yu sung his childhood friend and biggest supporter, didn't have the influence to save him. Only the argument of an elderly minister, pointing out Yi's loyal service in 1592, saved Korea's admiral from the executioner's block. Instead, Yi was demoted to private. The 52-year-old admiral was demoted to private in order to serve as a foot soldier, a painful humiliation in a culture that functioned on honor. But Yi Sun-shin swallowed his pride and obeyed orders. Was he bitter? Was he angry? Was he insulted? You bet! But his dedication to duty overcame his personal emotions. But on the way south, though, Yi received a heartbreaking piece of news. His 80-year-old mother had suffered a terrible shock when she learned of her son's arrest and torture. On the way north to attend to her boy, she had passed away. Yi was allowed to see to his mother's burial at his hometown of Asan. Here's what he wrote in his war diary. I wept as if my bowels were torn to pieces with grief. How can I express all the emotions I have had? On reaching home, we placed our casket in a room until the funeral day it rained in torrents. As I was exhausted with grief and the order to present myself at the southern military camp weighed on my mind, I could not but cry aloud. All I could conceive was that I had better die soon." Disgraced, dismissed, tortured, mourning, Yi sun reported to Guan Yul, the commander-in-chief of the Korean army. You might remember Quan Yul from the Battle of Hangju, the heroic siege where the Koreans used their rocket launchers where his tiny garrison resisted nine Japanese attacks. But Kwan Yul respected Yi Sun-shin. He didn't just put him in the ranks, he set him up in a little house where he could be left to his own devices. Guan Yul knew there might be a moment when Korea needed its admiral again. That moment was coming sooner than anyone thought. The Japanese Offensive of 1597 would be a completely different animal from 1592. The objective wasn't the conquest of China, with Korea just serving as a highway. No, this time the goal was to punish the Koreans for their defiance and seize the southern half of the country. The attack would be slow and grinding, a samurai steamroller instead of a samurai blitzkrieg. This fixed a lot of the logistic problems since a steady advance would be much easier to supply than the rapid advance of 1592. But this did not mean the Japanese behaved better. If anything, Japanese cruelty would be even worse in 1597. The Koreans would name this new war the Yu War for the year 1597, the year of the rooster. But it was really just the second act of the Mjin War. The main Japanese target was Chola Province, which the original Samurai Blitzkrieg had left untouched, largely because of the Korean Navy. So unless they wanted history to repeat itself, the Japanese would need to solve that problem. Even though Yi Sun-shin was gone, the Korean Navy still posed a major threat. But it wasn't the same Korean Navy. One change in management can make or break an institution. See, if you need any greater demonstration of the fact that leadership does matter, Here's an experiment for you. What happens when you take a beloved leader, a careful manager and brilliant strategist of amazing character, and replace him with a spiteful, drug-addicted failure? Yi sun Shen had carefully hoarded and stockpiled supplies, built and repaired ships, trained his crews, and managed his resources for six years. He had supervised everything personally, inspired confidence in his men, and built a trusted cadre of officers. But when Wang Yun took command in April 1597, he spent most of his time drunk, or yelling at all his officers, or both. He failed to read intelligence and scouting reports, inflicted arbitrary mass punishment on his men, and morale sank into the gutter and then some. Most officers lost any respect for their admiral. The Korean sailors looked at him like, this guy is going to get us all killed. In contrast, the Japanese Navy had been fixing itself. They had built back up to almost a thousand ships, many of which now carried cannons of their own. The new Japanese admiral was Todo Takatora, who had been the first Japanese commander to be donkey kicked by Yi Sun-shin way back in June 1592 at Okpo. He had taken his beating and learned from it, and he was ready for the rematch. Among his subordinates commanding squadrons in his fleet were the great daimyo of Kyushu, Shimatsu Yoshihiro, and church boy himself, Kanishi Yukinaka. So in August 1597, as Korea prepared to receive the new and improved Samurai Blitzkrieg, Won gi headquarters received a report from the Japanese spy Yajiro. this guy again, that a large Japanese fleet was moving west. If this sounds familiar, Yi Sun-shin had been presented with exactly the same dilemma four months earlier. Now, Wang Yun didn't want to fight. He would much rather keep knocking back rum and cokes and yelling at his officers like an abusive dad, but he'd spent the last several years whining that Yi Sun-shin was a coward who refused to fight. So now he had no choice but to fight. But he did it in the worst way possible. Wang Yun set out with minimal preparation time, intelligence analysis, planning, scouting, organization, all that boring nerd stuff that Yi Sun-shin always did. How many Japanese ships were there? What was their objective? What's our battle plan? Don't worry so much, it'll work out, right? On August 20th, 1597, Yoon's fleet of 200 ships glided along the coast near Busan when they found their enemy, waiting for them. A massive battle line of Japanese ships, banners flying and sailors in black armor scrambling across their decks, almost like they had expected the Koreans to come this way. Wan Gyun had walked right into the trap that Yi Sun Shin had looked at and said, Nope, that's a trap. So yeah. So what did Wan Gyun do? Of course, Wan Gyun ordered his ships to charge headlong into battle. No formation, no order, no organization, no plan, no attempt to use their long-range guns to their advantage on the open sea. Toto Takatora, the Japanese admiral, sat ramrod straight on his flagship, Katana jammed into the deck. He shouted orders above the roar of waves, ordering his ships to fall back, so the Koreans moved into a semicircle, a tactic the Japanese had learned from Yi Sun-shin. His ships nearly encircled the Korean vessels, blasting them with muskets and cannons. Then the Japanese counterattacked, swarming in from three sides. Soon, 30 Korean ships were sinking or boarded, the sailors fleeing from Japanese spear points or jumping from the sides of their wooden wrecks. Hwangiun's remaining ships fled west to seek shelter and water on the shores of Kadok Island. But this was part of the Japanese trap too. They had occupied every island in the area just in case the Koreans did this. When the exhausted Korean sailors came ashore, Shimatsu Yoshihiro came charging out of the woods with 3,000 soldiers. More ships were lost and the Koreans fled once again the Korean Navy found shelter in the narrow straits of Chil Yang on the island of Koje-do. After he received a message from the Korean High Command chewing him out for his incompetence, Won gi grabbed a bottle, locked himself in his cabin, and refused to speak to anyone. Even his captains, who were pounding on his door like, Hey boss, what do we do now? Boss? Boss, we really need a plan! But Won gi stayed in his cabin for the next week, drunk up to his eyeballs and staring at the wall. Outside, the fleet fell into disarray, with the sailors losing all hope and their officers pounding on the admiral's door, trying to get any ounce of leadership from the man who had replaced Yi Sun-shin. And the Japanese were coming. They smelled blood in the water. This was not the same Korean navy that had darkened their dreams for the last five years. Chil Yang was a death trap, a strait too narrow to maneuver, with only two entrances overlooked by high ground. It was time to solve this problem for good. On the night of August 27, 1597, the Japanese fleet of almost 500 ships blocked off both sides of the Straits of Chil chil yang Under the light of a full moon, the Japanese drew their katanas and loaded their matchlocks and cannons. After three signal guns were fired, their fleet blazed forward in a surprise night attack. At the same time, Shimatsu's samurai descended from the hills and launched musket balls and arrows into the sleeping Korean camp. The summer night throbbed with fire and screams as one Korean ship after another went up in flames. Some cast off and tried to escape, only to be caught and boarded. Samurai leaped onto the wooden decks and cut bloody paths through the moonlight. Many Koreans jumped into the sea to drown rather than be killed, including Yi Sun-shin's best friend and chess partner, Yi Ok-ki. Admiral Bei Seoul took his small squadron and ran for it, only stopping to burn the stockpiled supplies at the Korean naval base of Han do Then he kept running. His 12 ships were the only survivors of the midnight slaughter in the Straits. Wang Yoon's personal ship escaped the wreckage and wrecked on the Korean mainland. He and his crew disembarked leaving the wreck and climbing to the top of a hill. He turned to the cause and solution of all his problems. He opened a bottle and started shugging. When his crewmen urged him, hey, let's go, let's get out of here, Juan only said, we have death before us and that is all. There's no more need for talk. His men went on without him. When one of them looked back for an instant, he saw the wasted admiral leaning on a pine tree, sword limp in his hand, as six samurai closed in. And that was the last anyone saw of Wang Yoon. The Battle of Chilchul Yang was a total disaster for the Korean Navy. All of Yi Sun-shin's years of effort, his hoarded supplies, his trained men, his wonderful ships, even the turtle ships, had been wiped out in a week. Almost the entire Korean Navy was burned, captured, or littered the bottom of the Straits of Chilchul Yang. They had been the best that their country had to offer, always victorious, always courageous, the bane of the Japanese invasion. And now they were gone. Only a dozen ships left, only a tiny handful of demoralized, terrified Korean sailors. The Korean Navy had virtually ceased to exist. Within weeks, the Japanese launched the invasion of 1597, the Chongyu War. They rampaged across Chola province like a swarm of locusts, burning, sacking, raping, and destroying. And with the Korean Navy gone, the Japanese now ruled the seas. Thousands of samurai and their soldiers launched amphibious assaults on the seacoast towns and fortresses that Yi Sun-shin had once protected. No Korean ship emerged to stand in their way. The Korean kingdom, ruined, impoverished, desperate, staggered towards complete disaster. On September 13, 1597, Yi Sun-shin received a message from the Korean court. He was reappointed to command the Korean Navy. What was left of it? As he stared at the message, Yi Sun-shin knew they were not asking him to give them a victory. The Korean court and the Korean nation needed a miracle. Welcome to the year 1597, the year of the rooster, the second Japanese invasion of Korea, of the Battle of Myeongnyang, the Korean Thermopylae. So when is this exactly? Well, let's see. The text of William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet is first known to have been published this year. Sir Francis Drake, Queen Elizabeth I's favorite pirate-slash-admiral, died last year during his final mission and Francis Bacon is writing his first essays that will help develop the scientific method. Somewhat closer to our story, Toyotomi Hideyoshi has begun to suppress this newfangled Christian religion, and 26 converted Catholics are publicly crucified in the Japanese seaport of Nagasaki, because people went hard in the 16th century. Yi Sun-Shen never heard of William Shakespeare. William Shakespeare probably never heard of him. But at this moment, here off the coast of Korea, a drama worthy of Shakespeare was about to take place. Because Yi Sun-shin was about to make his final stand with his back to the wall at a place called Mayongyang Strait, a battle I call the Korean Thermopylae. I want you, right now, to put yourselves in the shoes of Yi Sun-shin, 52 years old, broken in body, wounded in spirit, grieving for his mother, receiving the news of the disaster at Chil Yang. He had spent years building his fleet. He had been one of the only people to foresee and plan for the Japanese invasion. He had built a band of brothers, loyal officers, and brave sailors, and used them to destroy the Japanese navy in 1592. He had saved his country from the samurai blitzkrieg. He had always done his duty as he saw it, even defied the orders of his king because he refused to take his navy into an obvious ambush. And in return, he had been abused, accused, slandered. They had fired him, imprisoned him, tortured him, kept him from the bedside of his dying mother. All to hand his magnificent navy to a drunken idiot who had gotten it annihilated. His friends, his comrades, his trusted officers were all lost. No one could blame him if he refused the call to arms, turned away, turned his back on the government that had treated him like this. It would be a human thing to do. No one would blame him. But he didn't. He wouldn't. Whatever he said in his diaries or to his sons and nephew or to his friends, and he had a lot to say, he had a lot of, you know, he had a lot of axes to grind, Yi Sun-shin could not abandon his duty. When Yi was restored to his position on September 13th, 1597, he set out to take command of, well, whatever was left. Yi rode through southern Shola province, staring at the chaos that was rippling out from the samurai steamroller. Crowds of refugees choked the roads. Local leaders fled into the hills. Supplies and armories were abandoned or burned. He did his best to restore order, using his military authority to solve whatever problems he found in his way. But the Japanese were coming, and there was only so much he could do. On September 28th, Yi finally arrived at the port of Horyongpo to meet the last 12 ships of the Korean Navy. Their commander, Pai Sol, was still freaking out about what he'd seen at Chilchil Yang, and then Yi learned that Pai Sol had fled the battle with 12 ships, but lost two on the way, so now there were 10. Only a couple of weeks after Yi Sun Shin arrived, Pai Sol just freaked out, lost his mind, and fled north, leaving the admiral to manage the fleet alone. The word fleet was a stretch. Though Yi was able to scrape up three more ships from various corners of the Korean coast, this left him with 13 ships. Maybe 12. 12 or 13, sources differ, most of the sources say 13, that's the number I'm sticking with for this episode. But still, 13 ships of the 200 strong armada that Yi had left in the hands of Wangyun. They weren't in great shape either, leaking, battle damaged, and dire need of maintenance. And the poor sailors look like a bunch of kids that have just learned that Santa isn't real. Yi began the month of October with 120 men, scared men, men who had just seen their comrades killed and their leaders fail them. They had to have been looking for the first opportunity to beat it. Their previous commanders had been Wang Yoon, a drunken coward, and Bai Soul, a sober coward. Admiral Yi had arrived, great, cool, you didn't bring any ships, you didn't bring any more men, what hope do we have with only 13 ships against a Japanese fleet that numbers in the hundreds? Now, Yi could have decided that it was pointless. He could have dissolved the navy entirely and sent his men to join the army. 13 ships was, well, basically nothing, he'd never had a small force this small. In fact, royal orders arrived at one point, commanding Yi to disband the fleet and send its men into the ranks of the ground forces. There was no point in holding on to such a small broken remnant of a navy. It was practically useless from the court's point of view. I mean, this is this is less than half the force that Yi started the war with, and the Japanese were stronger than ever. What was the point? But in a dangerous move, given what had happened to him like three months ago, Yi Sun-shin defied the royal order and got to work. He ordered the ships repaired and had them up-armored and improved with whatever he could scavenge. They were just nailing extra boards to the sides of these ships, converting them into semi-turtle ships, even though there was no time to build an actual turtle ship, even if they wanted to. He recruited new sailors from the hordes of refugees, gathered up survivors from Chill Yang, and brought in soldiers to beef up the crews. He even forged a few last-minute cannons on the spot to outfit his ships. But he couldn't do this fast enough. The Japanese were coming. Their massive armada was now pushing into the southwest corner of Korea. Their scout ships were coming closer and closer to Yi's hideout, where his tiny handful of vessels and skeleton crews were prepping as fast as they could. Refugees were pouring in with terrible news of what the Japanese were doing to Korea. Some sources say that the situation caused Yi to break down crying from stress and grief, so often that he developed an eye infection. But Yi Sun-shin knew that his biggest challenge wasn't his lack of guns or supplies or even ships. It was his men and their lack of spirit. Tired, traumatized, and terrified by what had just happened, the men were going to be the critical factor in whatever happened next. Yi sun Shen had to convince his shaken handful of survivors that they could not only fight the Japanese, but they could win. He had to transform them into a death army. In Chinese military thought, a death army was a force that had given up any hope of saving their own lives, men who would commit themselves to battle with no thought of self-preservation. In the words of Wu Qi, author of the great Chinese military classic Wu Qi, If the soldiers are committed to fight to the death, they will live, whereas if they seek to stay alive, they will die. To win the great victory that their country needed, the Korean sailors would have to think of themselves as already dead. Yi Sun-shin told his men, We are under orders of the king. Since the situation has reached this extremity, we must resolve to die together. Why should we hesitate to repay the royal bounty with our glorious deaths? There is only one choice for us now to make. Victory or death. And victory or death summed it up. Just like in 1592, there were two prongs to the samurai attack. The land forces were advancing on Seoul from the south, and the navy would come up the western coast of Korea, transporting a massive army of 60,000 men. With the Korean navy annihilated, the Japanese armada could roll on through the East China Sea and make the trip to Seoul. The two major obstacles that had held them back in 1592, logistics and sea power, would be overcome. Now that that had happened, very little could stand between Toyotomi Hideyoshi and the complete conquest of Korea. Yi Sun-shin and his small group of ships fell back, staying one step ahead of the massive Japanese armada but on October 8th, they ran into a handful of Japanese scout vessels. Yi Sun-shin turned around suddenly and took his flagship in a one-vessel charge against the Japanese, stunning and scattering the recon force. This little adventure did two things. The first was that it gave the Koreans a little bit of confidence, some belief that maybe, maybe there is a little bit of hope after all. The second was that it tipped the Japanese off. Yi Sun-shin was back. The Korean Navy wasn't quite dead yet. But what could he do with a handful of ships? It was time to finish this thing. The Japanese moved west, Yi Sun-shin's tiny remnant, in their crosshairs. Yi finally finished retreating when he reached a narrow sea passage on the very southwest corner of Korea, a strait between the island of Chindo and the Korean mainland. The strait was known as Myongnyang, And guys, this was it. End of the line. Yi Sun-shin, handful of sailors and their 13 ships, had their backs to the wall. If they didn't hold here, there was nowhere else they could stop the Japanese invasion. The salt waters of the Pacific lapped at the weather-beaten boards of Yi Sun-shin's fleet as they beached on Shendo. As his sailors carried out repairs and readied their weapons, Admiral Yi studied the waters of Mayongyang Strait. The Japanese were coming, 13 ships versus 300. A handful of ships and crews on the verge of panic versus a vast victorious armada. It would take more than genius or even courage to defeat the invaders. It would take a miracle. Or would it? We've seen geographic choke points a lot in this podcast, haven't we? It's another one, again. The Khyber Pass, Sterling, Gibraltar, Thermopylae. A few men in a geographic choke point can hold off an army if they're used correctly. That much is pretty common knowledge. It's one of the reasons I compare Thermopylae to Myongnyang, Two heroic defenses of a geographic choke point, one on land and one on the water, one with bronze shields and one with bronze cannon, separated by a continent in 2,000 years. But Myongnyang wasn't just a narrow strait, 250 meters at the narrowest, where a few ships could hold off a hundred. There was something odd about the waters of Myongnyang. The current was unusually fast and strong, the salty sea blasting through at a speed of almost 10 knots. But the current also changed every three hours from flowing north-south to flowing south-north, and vice versa. Myongyang's Strait was like a whiplash blasting back and forth, and when you knew the terrain, you knew how to use it. You can almost see the wheels turning in Admiral Yi's mind as he watched the waters of Myongyang. The Japanese fleet would be coming to destroy the pitiful remnant of his navy. There was nowhere to run. It was victory or death. The title of this episode compares the battle that's about to happen to the much more famous Battle of Thermopylae, with Leonidas and his 300 plus lots of people holding off the Persians. And as you know, there's a lot of mythology to that story, but we talked about that last month. But I think the Battle of Myongnyang was even more desperate, more hopeless, more epic. Since the Japanese spearhead contained 133 purpose-built warships, the Koreans were outnumbered at the low end by 10 to 1, and the 200 transports with them only made things worse. Plus, Yi Sun-shin's sailors were a remnant of a remnant, out on a limb, shaken by their recent defeat, far from the confident hoplites in the hot gates of Thermopylae. They were being asked to do more with less than Leonidas ever asked of the Greeks it was worse than Thermopylae for other reasons too. The odds were tougher, the stakes were higher. A defeat here would mean the end of the Korean navy, the final triumph of the Japanese on water which could destroy the kingdom of Choson. The Koreans needed more than a victory, they needed a miracle. The Japanese armada advanced west along the southern coast of Korea, led by Todo Takatora and his massive flagship. Their scouting parties had been chased off by a handful of Korean ships at the southwestern tip of the peninsula, reportedly led by their old nemesis, Yi Sun-shin. He was apparently positioned near to some little strait. But there were only a few of them, and the Japanese would wipe the floor with them in an hour's worth of fighting. The Japanese fleet rode west, samurai in their armor, Japanese sailors in their conical helmets, cleaning thousands of muskets and loading hundreds of cannons. The spearhead of one of the greatest fleets ever put on the seas, possibly more than 300 ships, bigger than the Spanish Armada, hurtled towards the Korean Thermopylae. At sunrise on October 26, 1597, Yi Sun-shin lined his 13 ships north of the rushing waters of yang placing the strait between him and the Japanese. Holding their positions, the Koreans breathed deep holding tight to the oars on their big panok songs, bobbing in the rapids of the current. The Straits of Myongnyang roared, and the Japanese came. Peasant lookouts high on the mountains were the ones who saw the fleet coming. They raced down to the shore and sent their news over to the, the Korean ships and rowboats. They said they had lost count of the Japanese ships, just that there were so many that they filled the sea. Yi Sun Shen grabbed the arms of his commander's chair, his eyes locked onto the southern entrance of the strait. The Japanese fleet came into view, and the Koreans felt their hearts sink. There were so many! First a few, then more than dozens. A wall of wood and metal and armor designed to smash through what was left of the Korean navy. Hundreds of ships. But as terrifying as the Japanese were, the choke point of Mayongyang kept them from being able to commit their whole force at once, Only a few ships could go through at a time, and the current was flowing south to north, which would push the Japanese towards the Korean battle line quickly, but also meant that the Japanese ships wouldn't be able to maneuver until they were through the strait. The Japanese warships began to filter into the straits of Mayongyang, and soon they were blasting through the rapids and filtering out to confront the Korean squadron. It was time to attack, Yi Sun-shin charged forth in his flagship, beard streaming in the wind, eyes fixed on the Japanese warships. He commanded his crew, Have no fear! Even if the enemy has 1,000 warships, they will not dare come near us. But when he turned around, he saw the other 12 ships of his fleet lagging behind. His mouth tightened. Yi's ship raised a signal flag and blew a massive war horn, calling them into the fight. When one captain finally drew close enough to be heard over the roar of the current, Yi yelled at him, we! do you want to die by court-martial? Do you think you'll survive if you run away? But the other Koreans were so terrified that they hung back, and for a while, Yi's flagship faced the Japanese alone. One ship on the water, described by onlookers as a castle on the sea, firing guns and arrows against the onrushing Japanese attackers. For a while, it looked like he might be overwhelmed, one ship against the tide. But the other Koreans couldn't leave their admiral alone. His personal example rallied the other ships to come join him. Yi Sun-shin's tiny fleet conquered their fear and charged into the maelstrom of fire and water that awaited them, into the spearhead of 130 Japanese vessels. To seek life was to die. To seek death was to live. Here we go. 13 verses 300. The Battle of Myeongnyang was on. The Korean ships rolled over the waves, rowers straining at the oars, archers loosing one fire arrow after another and setting Japanese ships ablaze, the brocade canopies wreathed in fire. The Korean gunners rammed cannonballs home, sending ball after ball whistling across the waves to smash into wood and metal and human bodies the heavy panoxons rammed the Japanese vessels, reinforced timbers smashing into their smaller opponents, throwing enemy sailors overboard and causing Korean sailors to grasp at the railings. But the Japanese fought back, firing thousands of musket balls, Japanese grappling hooks found perches on the Korean vessels, and salt water splashed over the decks as samurai jumped aboard, slashing around with their spears and katanas before being pushed back overboard by Koreans with clubs, oars, spears, anything they had. Observers described the Japanese like black ants swarming over onto Korean decks before being thrown over the sides or blasted away with muskets. Ships would get trapped and break loose, surrounded by several Japanese ships, before breaking away, spinning away like ballet dancers to blast with their cannons at point-blank range. Yi sun ships blasted their way to the Japanese flagship, captained by Kurushima Michifusa, Admiral of the Spearhead. Michifusa's brother, Michiyuki, had been killed by Yi sun fleet at the Battle of Tangpo in 1592, the first samurai warlord they had killed in battle. Michifusa burned for revenge, but now he went to join his brother as the flagship, burning and shattered by cannon fire, surrendered to the sea. Admiral Yi ordered Kurushima's body fished out of the water, carved into quarters, and hung from the mast. Wave after wave of Japanese ships poured out from the northern end of Myongnyang Strait, but the Koreans beat them back every time. Thirteen ships danced through the smoke and fire and water, ramming and shooting and firing and cheering. Yi's flagship was the center of the battle. Yi himself was shooting arrows, ordering cannons to fire, just present. Only 13 ships, and they held. Seeking death, they lived. The Japanese ships pouring into the channel became backed up, traffic jammed. The Japanese were hanging back, unwilling to go fight the band of lunatics aboard Yi's 13 ships, but they were being pressured from behind. Soon almost a hundred ships were packed together in the strait, a mass of wood rubbing against wood, ships at the back moving forward and ships at the front hanging back. And then... Part one of Yi Sun-shin's plan had been the choke point of Ma strait. And now part two kicked in because the battle had been going on for just under three hours. And the Mayongyang current reversed itself. The tide literally began to turn, from flowing south to north, to flowing north to south. The reversing current forced the Japanese ships into each other, smashing and crashing and spinning away in confusion. Yi Sun-shin probably didn't smile, he wasn't the smiling type, but it's hard not to imagine a look of grim satisfaction on his face. He raised the signal, waving his arm furiously with a clear message, now, now, this is the moment. The 13 ships charged forward, racing to ram or shoot the trapped, floundering Japanese robbers. The Koreans attacked with a feeling of sudden triumph as the current reversed itself, pulling the Japanese into confusion and pulling them into the pursuit. The broken, panicking Japanese war fleet turned tail and began to run. The rules had changed, and now the momentum was on Yi Sun Shin's side. The cold waters of Myongnyang Strait rushed south, carrying a tiny predator and their massive prey. The Japanese warships fled in panic, rowing and sailing as fast as they could, dodging cannonballs and arrows and musket fire. The vast armada, seeing their panic, turned around along with them. The Japanese routed. When they finally vanished to the east, the crews of Yi Sun Shen's thirteen ships gripped the rails of their vessels, their faces black, their armor torn, breathing and sweating like they had been through a CrossFit competition. They had survived. More than that, they had won. I do have to mention, before I go any farther, some versions of the Battle of Myeongnyang involve a chain laid across the strait, When the current changed, Yi Sun-shin allegedly had this Kirk chain tightened, preventing the Japanese from escaping and trapping them so they could be destroyed. Even some major scholarly works contain this narrative, such as Kenneth Swope's excellent book. But it is not mentioned in the primary sources and appears to have been a later invention. As cool as it would be, the chain across the strait doesn't seem to have actually happened. But still, the Japanese navy lost at least 30 ships and probably more in the epic battle of Myeongnyang. Yi Sun-shin lost not a single one and suffered minimal casualties. Hundreds, maybe thousands of Japanese, samurai, ashigaru, and sailors had vanished into the deep salty currents. But the biggest victory was psychological. Japanese confidence, which had been so high after Wang Wangyun's defeat at chil yang was shattered. Only 13 ships had stood them off, shown them the incredible heights of Korean courage, and this defiance seems to have scared them into retreat. Todo Takatora, wounded in the battle, took his battered navy all the way back to Busan and never dared to venture west again. The Japanese naval offensive had been halted, this time for good. The Battle of Myongyang was one of the most incredible naval battles in human history. Nowhere to run, No choice but to fight or die, 13 ships versus 300 ships. But the courage of a handful of Korean sailors and the leadership of their disgraced, tortured, grieving admiral had snatched victory from the jaws of near-certain defeat. It was a greater last stand than Thermopylae. The odds had been greater, the stakes had been higher, and the Koreans had won. The difference leadership makes has never been clearer. In six weeks, Yi Sun-shin turned a terrified, broken set of Korean sailors and 13 barely seaworthy ships into the Death Army that had stopped Toyotomi Hideyoshi's second invasion in its tracks. And the impact was enormous. Just when the Japanese seemed to have gained control of the sea, the door was slammed shut in their faces once again. At Mayongyang, Yi Sunshin's thirteen ships had blocked one great arm of the March on Seoul. Just as in 1592, the Japanese could not continue their invasion without control of the sea. And just as in 1592, Yi sun Sunshin's victory at Mayongyang turned the tide of the war. The Japanese navy would never reach the East China Sea, never pass beyond the gates of the roaring currents, This was literally their high-water mark, the very, very literal turn of the tide. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say Yi Sun-shin had saved Korea again. But the Japanese were still out there. They were still launching a massive, terrible invasion on land, and they would inflict a lot of pain and horror before the end. The Korean Thermopylae had ended, not in defeat like the original Thermopylae, but in an even more impossible victory. But the Imjin War dragged on, drawing people into its gaping maw. There was no telling how many lives would be lost before it was over. But on this immortal day, October 26, 1597, Yi Sun Shin and his sailors knew that Korea itself would survive. And today, that was more than enough. There are few things as dangerous as the wounded pride of a powerful man. One of those things is the broken heart of a parent. About a month after the Battle of Myongyang, Yi Sun-shin woke up from a dream. In it, his youngest son, Myeon had rescued him from drowning and held him close. Yi didn't know what the dream meant, but that day, he received a message from his hometown of Asan. The Japanese had burned the town to the ground, but they had sent a special mission to the estate of their greatest enemy. Most of his family was gone, but they had struck Yi Sun-shin's youngest son down when he tried to defend his father's house. Yi Sun-shin received this news as you might imagine. Unimaginable grief, despair, and rage. He wrote about how he felt in his war diary. I should die and you should live. That is the natural order. Now you are dead and I am alive. My son, where have you gone, leaving me behind? I wish to follow you to the grave to stay and weep together. But if I do, your brothers and sisters and your mother will have no one to support them. Thus I endure, with live body, but a dead soul. Yi Sun Shen in a few months had seen his navy, his men, and his friends destroyed. His mother die, his son cut down like an animal by the Japanese robbers. He burned for vengeance, and he didn't care where he found it. Somehow, Yi came to believe that a Japanese prisoner on board his ship had been the man who killed his son. When the man confessed under torture, probably falsely because people will say anything under torture, Yi Sun-shin extracted his revenge. He had the man's flesh stripped from his bones, bit by bit, until he was dead. This was war without rules, war without mercy and whoever won, whoever lost, whoever lived or died. Both sides knew that it would be fault to the bitter end. Next week, we will end the M. War. We will see what was happening on land while Yi sun was winning his victory on the waves, and see how the second Japanese invasion of Korea played out. The M. War will come to a close, and we will bid goodbye to both Toyotomi Hideyoshi and Yi Sun Shen. And of course, we will show how the Imjin War lives on today in the history and mythology of all three countries. Finally, as I always do, I will tell you why it matters, because you should care, and next week you will find out why. But I hope you really enjoyed today's episode. I hope it was just the most awesome thing you've ever heard. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends. And if you need to forge a letter from your boss to get people to listen to this podcast, do not legally implicate me. The Unknown Soldiers Podcast bears no legal or moral responsibility for whatever diplomatic shenanigans, aka advanced lying, you happen to get up to. If you want to find all my sources, including specially hand-drawn maps of the M.G.N. War, it's all on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or just drop me a line at Unknown Podcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. Your messages and your commentary and your listens. I track every listen this podcast gets. That keeps me writing. It keeps me talking. Thanks so much for listening, as always. And see you on Monday to finish the story with episode 23, Engine War Part Four: The Last Command. Only Here on Unknown Soldiers.